The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Gazing into the vast comics landscape while perched atop my gleaming surfboard, I see number one issues with embossed chromium covers littering the galaxy. Glittering collector's items as numerous as the stars, and thus I wonder within myself, will they shine as brightly as the decades trudge on like unto infinite reaches of the cosmos? Though I am neither warlock nor strange, you may call me Adam. Luckily, I am not alone in this sojourn through the cosmic cavalcade of comic books in the 1990s, as presented through the pages of Wizard Magazine. As the Herald of Adam, I'm Michael. <laughs> and joining us this time around for episode five is a very special guest who has been known to make the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, but he was really just <laughs> rushing to the local comic shop to pick up his poll list. Welcome to the show, Garen. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we are glad to have you here. This is kind of one of those situations where when you, you find certain people in your life and you can't believe that it's possible, you know, it's like, adult people who are into comics like me? This is great. <laughs> we basically got to know each other at a barbecue, and I think he was wearing some sort of comic book t-shirt. His wife is also wearing, like, an Optimus Prime shirt, whatever it might be. And I'm like, I've just discovered new friends. Like, there's no wow. doubt about it. We had many comic book conversations after the fact. Double dates to see Guardians of the Galaxy in theaters. Showing <laughs> off our collectibles to each other. Rummaging through my neighbor's garage where 90s superhero action figures were up for grabs. That was a great day. That was <laughs> on my birthday, too. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Geek bonding at its finest. That was yeah. so fun. That's pretty cool. I mean, we've even played Magic the Gathering together. I mean, that's how deep... <laughs> The nerdery goes. <laughs> but uh, this is something where, Garen, I, I think your story is pretty fun. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that as we get into your origin story. Oh gosh. So the first comic book I remember getting outside of, you know, the little comic books that came with your He-Man action figures, my mom picked up some uh, Transformers comic books. And uh, I love Transformers. I mean, I'm a little bit older than you guys, I think. So I grew up total Star Wars. But then when Star Wars fizzled out, it went straight into Masters of the Universe, Thundercats, and then Transformers. And, you know, Marvel was developing transformers they were the ones who put stories and names to the characters do you guys remember the transformers oh yeah, yeah. i've, I've oh, read yeah, those early issues the name dropping is endless in that first oh, issue my gosh. <laughs> they just light up all the autobots around each other and they're just like okay sunstreaker okay red wing whatever you know it's just like nonstop. oh it never ends and it goes like that for 80 something issues you know every issue is whoever new toy they need to introduce that month that was really fun i had a, a few of the star wars comics um here and there but then 
you know, again in the 90s. So I was in junior high at the time, and I had collected basketball cards and baseball cards and some of the sports memorabilia. And then a couple of my friends threw some comic books my way, and I said, I remember these. I used to love the Transformers comics. And so then I started reading some of the Dark Horse comics, like the Star Wars Dark Empire Got there when Spider-Man number one came out and watched the whole artist evolution, and it was a lot of fun. That's great. So now, when you were growing up, obviously, like you said, the comic books were coming with toys, but how did you get introduced to the idea just of superheroes? Did you have any one hero that was kind of your main favorite growing up? Yeah, definitely when I look at the pictures that I had growing up, opening my Star Wars action figures, I was always wearing a Spider-Man pajamas or something. So definitely in those days, you had the Lou Ferrigno Hulk, and you had Spider-Man, and then Spider-Man and his amazing friends, of course. So whatever was on Saturday morning cartoons. But I was always kind of a Marvel guy, even as a kid. So, yeah, it was always Marvel and Star Wars. Okay. When you were starting to pick up those books in the 90s, outside of, say, Star Wars or, you know, the collectability of Spider-Man number one, what else were you reading? What did you find passing through your hands? I had a bunch of X-Men titles, X-Men with Jim Lee, the X-Force with Liefeld, the big three, everything by Todd, Rob, and Jim, right, <laughs> um, were, were in my hands. And then, of course, you know, that I loved Ghost Rider. And Ghost Rider was the other one. It, it actually was the only comic book that I had the monthly subscription to. Ah. Um, I had Ghost Rider and Spirits of Vengeance. And so uh, that one, I think I almost have a complete run of the 90s Ghost Rider series. Yeah, I had so, him on a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's right, yeah. So I, I have the comic that Adam talked about. It's got the autograph of uh, Joe Quesada and... Jimmy Palmiotti, and it has Michael Bear. And I'll just mention this. Does, that, yeah. but Michael Bear was the inker. And, I, you know, he's not anybody that I think his name comes to, to mind. But when, I remember when I took that book to have him sign it, he, he, was, he was like, I can't believe I'm signing a Joe Quesada cover. Because <laughs> his work was on the interior of the book. It was not... <laughs> on the cover so to him he's just like it was just funny i don't, I don't know why it was just like wow he's such a nerd <laughs> like he, he cares about that you know he's got to mention it you know maybe at a, a I complex remember when you gave me that book like when you gave me that book i was like adam i can't take this this is too cool and you're like no no it's ghost rider you like ghost rider i'm like yeah but it's still cassava <laughs> I was like, I got my copy of the Ray signed. You got your Ghost Rider. I think yours is worth a little bit more than my Ray number one uh, with the signature, <laughs> but it's all good. It's what we do. We got to support each other, right? Keep yeah, the fandom totally. alive. So, yes, I was flipping through just the, the 90s comics that I have, and I was amazed at how many that I had that went over to Image. And I loved art, too. My mom was an art teacher growing up. And so by the time I got into seventh, eighth grade and I was seeing all of these artists, I just knew I was going to grow up and be a, a comic book artist. So I came home from school every day and probably drew for two hours straight, just comic book characters, just training my art and, and um, copying these guys, you know, just looking at their art and, and drawing the way that they drew. And by the time I graduated high school, I actually got an 
an art scholarship and paid for my first two years of college before I sort of changed my major and did something else. But there for a while, I was all in, going to be a comic artist. Did you ever create your own characters? Did you ever take it that far? Or were you just committed to, no, I can draw these guys really well? Of course. Yeah, I've got, <laughs> I've got all of these portfolios of just random characters that I came up with and little stories. And I did a, uh, I remember doing a Spider-Man and Spawn crossover comic where oh. we met each other. I thought that was epic. I'll have to send you some screenshots because it's pretty darn funny. <laughs> um, some of the some of the early art. That is great. My cousin was super into that side of things too. Because right? like for me, I never wanted to draw existing characters. For me, it was always, they're going to come out of my head and they're definitely not going to be original, but I'm going to say they're original creations. <laughs> they're just a, a tick off from this character. They're based on this character. But my cousin, I remember, he drew me a full comic book adaptation of Batman 89. And so I still have it to this day. So he just, you know, drew it out, did all the panels and everything. And then he did a second book later for me that was a team up between Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man. And it was like, it was like Spider-Man's birthday and they were bringing him a cake. Like it was hilarious. Like in <laughs> retrospect. But I always, I was in awe of the people who could actually draw the characters in the style of the comics of the day, you know, cause that was never what my ability was. And so that's awesome that you were able to take it that far and get some money out of it, even if it wasn't from publishing <laughs> comics or working in the industry. Well, it cracks me up to hear you say that, you know, you were doing all these copies of characters. And I'm sure you guys will get into this when you start looking at the image comics. But how many of the artists went like Del Kion went from Hulk to Pitt? Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, just we're drawing basically the same type of character and just doing a little twist on it and then, you know, doing their own books. And then all of the titles that went from X-Men to, you know, Cyber Force or Wildcats. Or... <laughs> yeah, it's like everybody had their own X-Men team. Like, this is oh, what yeah. I would have done with the X-Men. <laughs> now you have Brigade. Right, yeah, exactly. Now you have, you know, yeah. This guy has claws. And this guy has a Batman funny. mask, but it's like silver. It's different. It's different. <laughs> he's Wolverine <laughs> right. hair, but he's not Wolverine. <laughs> But yeah, so those image days, uh, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on when we get deep into that because there's so much more to say. But I think as we've heard where your, your comics fandom lies, more will come out in our discussion. And so, Michael, I think it's time for the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. We're heading back to January of 1992, and in our movies area, we have The Hand That Rocks the Cradle on January 10th. We have a movie called Cuffs, also on January 10th, and another movie, which is a pretty cool movie, and if you've ever seen this movie, it's really out there, a movie called Free Jack on January 17th. Free Jack is one of those movies I always saw at the video store. Here you got Mick Jagger, right? And Emilio Estevez. That's Free Jack, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> and it's a weird situation where like you could do you go back in time into somebody else's body? Isn't that the main premise of that film? You basically yeah, you're you're jacking into somebody else's mind. It's kind of like a psychotic quantum leap in a sense yeah <laughs> it was it was one of those movies that 
like when you watch it the first time, you're like, what is this? Who wrote this? <laughs> and th- th- there's a real interesting backstory to this movie. It's one of those movies you have to watch like three or four times to be like, man, this movie is nuts. And if you <laughs> devote that much time to watch it, you're nuts too, my personal opinion. <laughs> but, uh... Speaking of free, Jack, this is the perfect moment to take a break and tell you about another awesome podcast we recommend, The Cult Film Club. It's the monthly podcast where Jamie, Pax, and Sean talk about the weird and obscure movies they love to death. Just listen to these past titles. Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, The Shadow with Alec Baldwin, The Last Dragon, Repo Man, Mortal Kombat, Gleaming the Cube. And coming in March, they'll be covering Free Jack, starring Emilio Estevez and Nick Jagger. So be sure to check out the Cult Film Club podcast on Twitter at CFCPod or on their awesome website, cultfilmclub.com. And hey, tell them Wizard sent you. I actually, going back, I really like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. That was one of those movies that was really creepy for me as a kid but i was always like fascinated by like wow this is really a terrifying thing i'm like i had i had a nanny growing up because my parents were always working and everything and i was like there was a real nanny this is terrifying this is horrible yeah i mean for those who don't know i mean this was the era where though these like suspense thrillers were so huge and basically it's about a nanny who tries to take over the family you know she's trying to to take out the wife of the situation have the husband have the baby for herself but it like it gave rise to films you know like single white female and just all these things where somebody's going to take somebody else's identity in life and take it over you know that that was very big in the in the early nineties, especially. And the other one, Cuffs. I don't remember at all. I think I mentioned this last episode, but I saw Cuffs in a double feature with Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. You did say that last time. I remember. Yeah, and, and we're going to talk about Undiscovered Country briefly here when they, when it's mentioned in the the table of contents. So I have a question for you when that comes up. Oh, boy. So, let's jump into the music of January of 1992. There is Jawbreaker Biovac. This is Bivouac. This is for our punk fans. I feel like we always got to put that in. Jawbreaker is this band that I don't know a whole lot about, but one of my favorite indie bands from Arizona called Domo. They were super big fans. I went to all their shows. But Jawbreaker was like on the cusp of becoming the next big thing. They were going to be the next Green Day. They were going to be all this. And they made a big deal about we're never going to sell out we're never going to sign a record contract they had a song about like big punk rock before you were punk rock like that was their whole thing and they then they finally after making that big fuss signed a record contract totally changed their style and nobody wanted to buy their albums not new audiences and they had already alienated their old audience there's an actual documentary on Amazon Prime if anybody ever wants to watch it it's a fascinating story about this group that again they were on Rolling Stone. They were everywhere, and it just fizzled for them very quickly once they literally hit the big time. So Wow. I probably have heard of them, but I don't remember them at all. Again, probably because it fizzled out so quick. The next song or album or music is Michael Jackson's Remember the Time. 
<laughs> yeah, as many of you might have noticed leading up to this now, we actually had to change our intro music for Wave Riders Wayback Machine, which we originally were using Remember the Time. We thought that was perfect. Unfortunately, YouTube disagrees, and we were getting blocked, <laughs> so we could not put the show up on YouTube. So we had to change it to an original song. So that's actually me singing at the beginning of Wave Riders Wayback Machine, if you've been wondering, or rather my alter ego, Mel Zorro. <laughs> <laughs> if you want a copy of the song, you can find it on YouTube. It's called Let's Go Back by Mel Zorro. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we're friends. Now, apparently, Jackie Chan released his first music album called First Time. And this is for real. <laughs> I, I, I want to find this album. I have to find this now and see if I can listen to this. Because I can't imagine Jackie Chan singing in an album like this is like the bruce willis kind of a thing exactly <laughs> Return is he of singing or is he rapping? he's actually singing you can find this on youtube if you type in jackie chan album first time so you know a full album of songs he's actually not bad but it's full on early 90s easy listening jazzy music that he's singing in chinese oh i was gonna say in english <laughs> yeah he, he didn't break through yet in, in america at this point it's only Got 92 it. you know, I think we had to wait yeah. for Rubble in the Bronx a few years later before Jackie Chan really got into our consciousness. But yeah, I mean, it's him just crooning along. There's saxophone, synth music with a beat, you know, so he's doing it. There's 10 songs on here. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and this is where it's crazy. There are thousands of views on this thing. Thousands. <laughs> wow. I'm floored. Now I got to like listen to this on the train one day and just see like... What am I dealing with here? What is this all about? This is the kind of research you get on the Wizards podcast. All right, guys? Tell your friends. You're already doing a great job, but you will also find music you never knew existed. Fantastic. And, folks, that's this week's Wave Riders Wayback Machine. So, as we mentioned, now we are in January of 1992, this issue, and we have a Silver Surfer cover. He's decked out in the wizard robe, and he's flying through the cosmos there. They mention here in the table of contents about our cover. Flying around in space without any clothes on certainly can get chilly, so we donated a wizard robe to our buddy the Silver Surfer. The Surfer can be found in the pages of his own monthly title and popping up all over the Marvel Universe. But of course. And this cover is by Ron Lim, and that's a pretty big name from the 90s scene, especially obviously at Marvel. Does Ron Lim ring a bell for any of you, what he was involved in, his high-profile projects of the day? No, unfortunately, he doesn't ring a bell at all. He was doing, like, Infinity Gauntlet or one That's of those? right, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? It, it started with George Perez. On Infinity right. Gauntlet, and then George Perez, I guess, moved on. I don't know if it was creative differences or what, but he left, and so Ron Lim finished up the Infinity Gauntlet, and he just blew up huge after that. I didn't realize that. Wow, I, I always thought it was Perez. I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah, and he was also the regular artist on Silver Surfer as a result. His art style's fairly 90s. I guess you would say it's not the extreme style, but it's, it's kind of got a more cartoony edge to it. He talks about, you know, worked on some Captain America stories and he literally just got hired at Marvel by taking his portfolio to a show and then they were just like this is great why don't you come work for us right now <laughs> he's like uh, okay that was my dream right yeah, there yeah I was know? gonna say why didn't you do it Garrett you should have headed out to the show 
I don't know, man. I could have been selling Levi's like Rob, you know? (laughs) Drive-in Lamborghinis. The main thing that is the takeaway from this interview, though, is this is one of the first moments that Wizard's sense of humor starts to show through. Because the final question to Rod Liv is, where does the Silver Surfer keep his private parts? To which he responds, in his pocket? I don't know. (laughs) He was caught off guard by that. But, you know, that's definitely the angle that Wizard would start going in the later years. But this led me to do some research because I was saying, okay, well, that's a funny question. And I'm used to, you know, a child of the 80s and 90s seeing Silver Surfer as basically just a naked silver guy, right? But this is not a question that ever would have been asked Jack Kirby, who drew the original Silver Surfer, because he always drew him with swim trunks on, literally like a surfer, but they were silver swim trunks, so they blended in. But if you look really closely, it's like the standard superhero underwear, but it just I, is I the same color. That, yeah. it, it looked like a tiny little pair of shorts. Like, yeah. Like, it's very Spandex. subtle. Really, it started to change towards the end of his run on the Defenders, and then when, when he kind of got rebooted in the 80s and got his own title and everything, that's when he had the silver Ken doll look, is what I would call it. We're going to get deep into him uh, shortly here, but I just thought that was worth mentioning based on the question. Well worth it, yes. <laughs> also, this issue is an interview with Peter David. Now, I'm curious from you guys, what do you know Peter David from the most? Garen? I think Hulk when I think Peter David, but when I was flipping through some of my comics before we were coming on. What did I see him on? X-Factor or something? Yeah. Specifically in this issue, because he was being brought on to write X-Factor, and he's kind of like, well, it wasn't my choice. At least the team was not his choice, but being on any X-Book is so high profile right now, people might actually start to know who I am. (laughs) He's like, I've been writing Hulk for a while, and I don't think anybody really cares. But now that I'm writing X-Factor, I'm getting all sorts of notices and people mentioning my name. And so he was most excited to have Quicksilver on his team because apparently like there was like maybe he was going to be on this book and then he wasn't so then he's like oh now I get to use him and so he was saying like I like a guy who can shake things up in a team <laughs> how about for you Michael Peter David I actually have a Peter David story. I met oh, him recently. Wow. About two years ago, he was at my local comic book store doing a signing, and I knew him for, really was like Supergirl, more current stuff, and I remembered the stuff from the 90s, but I was reading his Supergirl and stuff like that, and I went and had a conversation with him and talked to him for about 10 minutes or so. I said, which was your, you know, it was a really stupid question to ask, but I was kind of like a little starstruck. I was like, what was your favorite? And he's like, well, they're all kind of like your kids, and you know, what you're writing one, or so on and so forth. <laughs> you know, you you love them at that at that time, and then you kind of you know grow beyond it. It was a really cool conversation. It was nice to talk to, super chill guy, very friendly, and just really interesting. And then I oh, let me look back, and I I didn't realize how many different things he's done and i was like oh my goodness and really really nice he always seems that way because he shows up in wizard a lot as the issues go on and he's one of those guys that just seems like he'll write anything i mean he's literally been on so many random books i mean i know for dc he wrote star trek books for a while and even in here he mentions how they were going to be doing a little mermaid comic and he was talking to len ween and he's like i asked if anyone else had dibs on writing it and he said no i said in the event you do a Little Mermaid comic, I now have dibs on it. And if you get anyone else to write it, I'll break both your legs. (laughs) 
Glenn said he'd keep that in mind. <laughs> and they mentioned that the three-issue miniseries originally planned as an ongoing series before Disney's announcement that it was canceling all non-reprint titles will act as a prequel to the hit movie covering Ariel's life among the merfolk before she met Prince Eric. And so that's <laughs> kind of interesting. He was so into writing The Little Mermaid. For me personally, Peter David is the genius behind Spider-Man 2099, among my favorite 90s titles. And I was so committed to what he did, and Rick Lenardi was the artist on that, and I just love 2099 and the whole attitude that Peter David brought. Plus, like, he wrote so many comic book-based novels. Like, if you'd go to the bookstore, you'd see a Hulk novel, you'd see a Spider-Man novel, whatever, and they'd have Peter David's name on it. That's cool. I didn't realize he did 2099. Yeah, he, he was there for it all the way. The next interview, speaking of very established members of the comic book community, were Walt and Louise or Wheezy Simonson. Definitely some big names that you hear, mostly I would say through the 80s. Like, they were very, very prevalent, especially at Marvel. But they did a lot of work at DC as well. So I'm curious for you, Garen, Walter Wheezy Simonson, who do you think of? What character? Uh, if I'm not, not mistaken, I think he worked on Star Wars for a while. But I think you're right. Yeah, I think he did do some of that. And it's interesting because for me, what he mentions that really stood out was he drew 10 of the DC Cosmic Cards. <laughs> nice. Because they were just coming out at this time, so he was mentioning that. And then he was also writing the Iron Man 2020 prestige format book with Bob Layton. And this is the year of Iron Man 2020. We are in it. We should, we should find that book and talk about it. I've got it. So yeah, you find it, we'll gonna, cover I'll, it down the I'll line. I'll find it on eBay. I read it last week. Oh, oh yeah. yeah? But yeah, but it's interesting because Louise, or Wheezy, as she was always called, like she did a lot of work with X-Men, so she worked with uh, Chris Claremont a lot in that, but also she wrote Superman for quite a while, which I thought was interesting. So she was very involved there, and I think they worked together on Power Pack. If you're ever going to go in a quarter bin, you're going to find some Power Pack comics. But they did get a TV pilot once. They were going to make a Power Pack TV show in the late 80s, so there was something there for somebody, but I don't know what it was. Most interesting to me, though, was Wheezy mentioned that she was going to do, like, romance comic books based on Harlequin romance novels, but that fell through, uh, along with a project to do Sweet Valley High as a comic book. <laughs> I just thought that would have been very interesting. I mean, at the time, she's like, yeah, it's kind of the same people who would want to read Babysitter's Club that would want to read that. And it didn't happen, but later on, I actually did read a Babysitter's Club comic book that was at my local library. It was like, they just took the books and turned them into graphic novels. And I was like, this is pretty awesome, actually. It works out. <laughs> So she was ahead of her time, ahead of her time. All right, next up here is talking about that Andy Mangles has his Hollywood Heroes column, and the focus of this one, last time we talked about the 1990 Captain America movie, this time around, it's Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, as previously mentioned. So the question I have for you guys, as I said, I saw this in a double feature with Cuffs. Peter David wrote the Star Trek comic books for DC, featuring, you know, the older, cast as they were going about their adventures for Starfleet. So, does this count as a comic book movie just because DC was publishing a Star Trek comic book at the time? I would say no, and I'll tell you why. Because the movies or even the stories came before any comic. So, I don't classify this as a comic book movie at all. How about you, Garen? That'd be like saying that the uh, the Marvel run on Star Wars 
had any influence on the movies, which it did not. <laughs> so I say no. Yeah, unfortunately, I think they were trying to compete with Starlog. Like, I don't know why they chose this as their focus. Star Trek in Wizard, why? Like, it, it just doesn't fit. <laughs> Yeah. So, again, they had comics, but I do not think it counts. This article, for me, felt like what could have been YouTubers nowadays. Like, oh, this is my soapbox idea of talking about this thing. Oh, I'm going to shoehorn this into being a comic book movie. And it was, you know, <laughs> I, can't, I have nowhere else to share it. I'm going to share it in Wizard as a, as a what would be now a blog post, theoretically, you know? <laughs> Basically. And then from the picks from the Wizard's hat section, we're not going to have a full Guy Gardner's gimmicks a go-go this week. But as I was looking through the books that were being released this month, one of them definitely had a gimmick to it, but it wasn't a new gimmick for the 90s. This was A Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's Dead, the 3D comic book. And for those who don't recall, the film itself, you would get 3D glasses in the theater, so the last, you know, the climax of the film was all in 3D, and that was kind of the gimmick, so I'm sure that's why this tied in. But did you guys ever read 3D? 3D comics growing up because there was a, a period in the 80s where they really seemed to be everywhere. Honestly, for me back then, no. The only 3D comic I can remember ever buying was more in the mid 2000s or late 2000s during Final Crisis. There was a Superman book that was 3D. Oh. And, and it was really amazing. And it was like a tie in to, to Final Crisis. That was really, really good. But Back in the 80s and 90s, I I wasn't even thinking about 3D because it was kind of like kitschy, you know, it wasn't really my thing back then. Yeah, well, it was definitely a throwback, I think, was the idea, you know, because especially in the 80s, the 50s were such a big deal. I remember seeing Gumby 3D comics, usually by Blackthorn Publishing, I think, was the house that put those out for the most part. But Garrett, did you ever find any? Yeah, so it's interesting. When I was flipping through my comics, there was a book released and it was called Valiant Vision Starter Kit. Oh, and you yeah. remember the publisher Valiant? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, like, it came with this comic and, and a pair of glasses, and the cover artist was Joe Casada, actually. And really, these glasses were designed to make any comic sort of look 3D. And they really focused on like the reds and the blues and the greens in the comic book itself. This one here, the Valiant Vision comic. So you get some like really cool shots when you put your glasses on and they've got this character on the front who's all red and he really stands out solar man of the atom that's the one yeah there he is they released all the books with this little insignia on the cover that said valiant vision so you knew it would work with your glasses that's one of the gimmicks i always heard actually worked like you said like it actually looked cool just from an innovation standpoint it wasn't standard 3d it was just a new way to enhance the images it was cool i remember every comic i got i'd throw on the glasses and just look through to see if any you know images popped and a lot of the the characters spawn spider-man the ones that were all red just jumped off the page and looked 3d and then other parts looked sort of flat so it didn't really capture the image correctly if you had like background that was red but it was a pretty neat gimmick actually yeah and i'll just mention recently in my collection for some different projects i've grabbed a few 3d comics just because i thought it was such a funny idea based on the subject material and so for example i have the noid from domino's pizza had his own (laughs) 3d comic book (laughs) it's great and then also the adaptation of rambo 3 in 3D. Wow. 
That that's wow. kind of, so when you said that you grabbed a few things, I was gonna say it's gonna be something like Garfield or that, and then you threw out Noid. I was like, wow, not even I wasn't even in the same ballpark. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. yeah, anyway, so I just thought that was worth mentioning. So I was just like, okay, so they were still doing the 3D thing, and more innovation to come, as Garen mentioned. One of the other articles in here is called Science Fiction Heroes, and Garen, you know, as you mentioned, you're a big Star Wars fan, and what they mention in this article. The, the main thrust of it is that all comics really from the Silver Age on, and really if you go back even to the Golden Age, they have a sci-fi angle, if you really think about it. Even just like comic strips, you know, whether it was Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon, like the stuff that was really popular, it took place in space. Superman, for example, he's an alien, right? Like, there, mm-hmm. you just can't get away from it. And I think that fascination kind of faded over time, where it was sci-fi, but it was without the space op. So it, it's one of those things where if you look, like, they... They're mentioning characters mostly from DC that you just never heard of. Mentioning that they were all generic spacemen going about their <laughs> adventures. They are not necessarily praising the books, but I thought one in particular was pretty funny because they mentioned their first attempt was a backup feature in Real Fact Comics, a bi-monthly title that was not exactly setting sales records. Kids weren't <laughs> interested in true stuff, so the Real Facts got stretched a little to include guesses about the future. And that gave us, among other things, Tommy Tomorrow, DC's first futuristic hero. <laughs> and then they even go on to mention a guy named Captain Future that really, what really set him apart was he had a sidekick named Brent, who was atypical among sidekicks in that he had no personality at all. He wasn't short or fat or funny looking. He didn't often make wisecracks. He was just there. <laughs> Like, was he just Brent? Did he have a last name? I think he was probably Brent? just Brent. <laughs> Beyonce wow. or Madonna, just Brent. His only distinguishing features were a mustache and black hair. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, science fiction comics from back in the day. What are you going to do? That's pretty funny. When I think of science fiction comics back in the day, I think of the scene in Back to the Future where, you know, Marty McFly ends oh, up in, yeah. in 55 and he emerges from the DeLorean and there's that kid reading the comic book and looks up and it looks just just like the sci-fi comic. I am Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan. (laughs) That's right, yeah. But yeah, and then as we close out the table of contents here, because obviously we have our, our standard features here, such as, you know, the Wizard Comic Watch, grading your comics, toying around, which we'll get to, Game Pro video game reviews. They're still borrowed from Game Pro. That's fine. <laughs> the trading <laughs> card sections, the Wizard of Comics and Cards, and Wizard Top 10, the Comic Book Price Guide, of course. The one thing I'll mention about this issue is up to this point, they've been putting all of the price guide stuff in the middle of the book, and then they would shove a bunch of articles behind it and i always thought that was a terrible idea so they finally moved the price guide to the back of the book so you get to read all your stuff up front and they do go there there was also the mighty mutant tour ad so this is something that generally in comics back in the day when there was going to be a show there was like just a kind of a black and white box or something and they would tell you you know needed in this basement in Poughkeepsie and you'll be able to maybe meet a comics professional
professional. Or <laughs> this thing is a full glossy ad on the back of the poster of a Silver Surfer that comes in this. Homage Studios and Super Comic Con present the Mighty Mutant Tour, where you can meet Jim Lee, Scott Williams, Will Sportacio, with special guest artists John Romita Jr., Mark Silvestri, Larry Stroman, and Art Thibert. And it was at the Town and Country Hotel in San Diego, California. <laughs> but I just thought this was so interesting, because I mean, back in the day, the, the admission was $7 for one day, $10 for both days. Imagine getting into any type of comics event for that amount today. Impossible. <laughs> $75 a day in New York Comic Con. And there is... 200,000 people a day there. And you're just lucky if you can get in to San Diego Comic-Con. Oh, forget it. Like, get on a waiting list, or you gotta be in the press, or whatever it is. The one thing that stood out to me the most on this, though, is that Jim Lee has homage studios already. So he's working for Marvel, he's doing X-Men, but he's got his own company on the side? It seems like it's setting up things to come, you know, as he's getting ready to go over to Image, and he would actually change the name of his company multiple times. We'll get into that eventually. It's almost like, what kind of contract did he sign with Marvel that he could have his own side company as well? Back then, that wasn't really a common thing. Nowadays, I mean, a lot of comic artists and writers, they have side businesses where they do their, you know, independent stuff, but back then, that wasn't wasn't a common thing. Well, what was he doing with it? I assume it had to do with some sort of contract where Marvel is paying homage studios, so they're contracted with them, not Jim as, you know, work for hire directly or something like that. It's The business side of that is interesting. I'm curious, though, Garen, did you go to any events or cons or signings during the early 90s? No, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, because when I was flipping through this issue, there's a giant full-page ad for Atomic Comics. Yes. In Mesa, Arizona. I grew up in a small town in southeast Arizona, and so there was there was nothing. I mean, I literally got my comics at Circle K, just the little spinner rack, unless I ordered them, mail-ordered, and got them delivered monthly. But when we went for some type of family event or something when we came to phoenix everybody went to atomic comics and it was like walking into uh i mean to to us growing up in a small town it was the most amazing thing i've ever seen um as a kid says what a million comics inventory or something well yeah that's the thing about atomic comics you know uh Garen and I are both here in Arizona, and they recently went out of business, what was it, like five or six years ago? Probably, yeah, probably longer, about 10 years ago, but... Yeah, I mean, I was going like still monthly to Atomic and then just showed up one month and uh, no go. Yeah, there was just like a paper on the door. It's like, we're going out of business. Sorry, no going out of business sale. It's just like all all stores are shutting down immediately. And you're like, ah. But the thing that I think is interesting is as we've been going through these issues of Wizard, I haven't really mentioned it, but each issue thus far had an ad from Atomic Comics, but the art on here was by like legitimate artists who had a Spider-Man ad, they had a Punisher ad, and this one they have a Sandman ad, Sandman, has Sandman yeah. and Death, you know, so it's just really interesting that they were serious about it. I was like, wow, okay, they're trying to stand out in a big way. Finally, our small town got a little tiny comic shop that lasts 
lasted about six months, and that was fun for a while, but just couldn't sustain. Uh, so it's too bad Atomic went the same way. Like most brick-and-mortar stores. Yeah. But now, uh, as we continue on here, it's time to have a discussion because two of the big articles up front that they are focusing on in this issue, obviously with their cover celebrating the Silver Surfer, they have two articles, one on Galactus and one on the history of the Silver Surfer. And so I'm very curious for you guys, where is the Silver Surfer in your pantheon of heroes that you ever read or collected or even have an interest in? Michael? Were you a big Silver Surfer fan back in the day? I will admit, I have never bought a Silver Surfer comic book in my life. (laughs) That being said, he's one of the most interesting characters in comics to me. I don't know why, it's just, maybe it's the look, because he's one of those characters that he pops up and he's he's huge for a little while, and then he vanishes for a long period of time, and then he always resurges, and he's like, oh, the Silver Surfer's back. And I remember when I started collecting Funko Pops, it was like one of the first ones I ever bought. Like, oh my god, they have a Silver Surfer, I gotta get this. I don't know why, I just, he's a character that has always interested me, cool backstory, but I never bought a book. I mean, I've written, or I've read him in other books, like tied in with Fantastic Four or what have you. I never bought like a single Silver Surfer book, which I found weird. How about you, Garen? You're into the world of the intergalactic. <laughs> I'm kind of with Michael, though. I, I wasn't into Silver Surfer at all. Um, I've got a couple issues where he appears, but uh, to me, he was one of those characters that just, the art was cool. I had a buddy in high school who had a t-shirt, and it was a Silver Surfer, and it went, the entire shirt was just covered in Silver Surfer art, and it was really cool. So I know a lot of people accuse Ghost Rider of being cool just because of the artwork, but I throw some of that shade back at Silver Surfer. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting, because I'm in the same boat. Like, I had the Toy Biz Silver Surfer figure, the the one that had the chrome finish, not kind of the dull gray one that originally came out. I had the gray one. It was lame. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I was like, I waited. I was like, oh, they did a better paint job. All right. But according to Stan Lee, you know, he created the story of Galactus without the Silver Surfer. And this is interesting. I have a book that I got from, well, now it's been so long that the store even existed. Now I'm blanking. What was the main competitor to Barnes & Noble? Borders? Borders, Borders, yes. Yeah, Borders. Because I would always get Borders cash, and then I could go buy comics and other stuff at their store. I loved it. But I bought this book there called Stan Lee's Amazing Marvel Universe. And basically what it is, is it's you know a history of 50 legendary Marvel moments as told by Stan Lee, literally. It has a speaker built into the side of the book, and it has recordings <laughs> of Stan telling the story to the best of his ability. You know, Stan tends to add details here. There. So I'm going to play it for you guys real quick. This is his story about the Silver Surfer. Jack drew a fellow on, an, on a flying surfboard in the series. And I said to him, because I, I had told him about Galactus, it was my plot, but I hadn't told him anything about a guy on a flying surfboard. I said, who's that? And he said, well, I figure anybody as powerful as Galactus should have a herald who flies ahead of him to find planets that will nurture him. And um, I liked the way Jack drew this fellow, who looked very noble, and I called him the Silver Surfer. So there you go. I like how he calls him a fellow. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> he's a nice fellow. Yeah, he's a fine chap. Yeah, he just, he's just a know. good chap. Well, and here's the thing, though. I feel like Stan Lee 
gets a bad rap from certain areas of the comics community for being corporate, not giving his collaborators their due. But here, he's very clearly saying Jack Kirby, because of the Marvel method of discussing a plot, letting the artist put the art together, and then the writer coming in and doing dialogue after the fact, he's saying Jack Kirby created this guy. I didn't know saying it, but I liked it, so we kept him. To me, Stanley is far from Bob Kane, you know, who hogged all the I created Batman credit for years and years. You know, we didn't find out about Bill Finger and how involved he was. There's also a great Hulu documentary if you oh, guys have never so seen good. that. It's so good. It's amazing. Uh, but who else besides Stan Lee was giving the artists, the letterers, the inkers credit in the front of a comic book? You know, Jazzy John Romita, whoever it was. Like, he made everybody in the process important. And, you know, he certainly always praised Jack Kirby's influence on creating the main cast of Marvel icons. I know a lot of people stick with he didn't get his original art back or residuals for his part in the process, <laughs> but that was contractual. You know, that wasn't personal on Stan's part. He was never at the top of the food chain in the corporate structure, only creatively. You know, he was like the publisher at one point, their editor-in-chief, but he wasn't the CEO of Timely Comics or whoever the ultimate corporate entity was. He was the face of the company. He wasn't the monetary muscle. I think he talked up everybody and I, in a way gave rise to all their biggest artists leaving because he made the artists important. Whereas before then, you never got credit. You know, maybe people found out Kurt Swan drew Superman because they wrote a letter in and asked, you know, but that wasn't how it worked back in the day. Other than, again, Bob Kane signing his name on every piece of Batman art. Oh, every piece. <laughs> so I just I just find that fascinating that, oh yeah, yeah, Jack Kirby did it, and so it is. So you guys said you didn't collect him, but the character was so popular in the pages of Fantastic Four, you know, his first appearance, Fantastic Four, 48 through 50, the Galactus trilogy. Where, where do you guys fall on Galactus as opposed to the Silver Surfer? Any more interest in that guy? So I've always liked the idea of Galactus, like this world eater kind of a guy, until they did the smoke monster in the Fantastic Four movie, which was kind of a bummer. Galactus is one of those characters that kind of feels like that and the Anti-Monitor and Darkseid. They all kind of like in one way or another have similarities to them but I do like the idea of the character I like this giant being that's just omnipresent that can just eat planets that's kind of a cool idea back then no one would have ever thought of like that stuff is so out there that it's just beyond and, and it makes sense where Jack Kirby would eventually go with like the fourth world and all that kind of stuff yeah I feel like you took the words right out of my mouth when you mentioned Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer I thought Silver Surfer looked pretty cool on there but to have Galactus just not show up, and I understand they probably had limitations on the budget or CGI or whatever. So I'm looking forward to a Galactus appearance, hopefully in the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, sometime soon. Yeah, preparation for the show, I watched Rise of the Silver Surfer today. <laughs> I had watched it probably in 10 years. And yeah, like you said, I mean, Silver Surfer looks amazing in that. And there are some very cool visuals. And this is the fun fact. So originally, Galactus was going to be a character and he was going to speak. And they got Lawrence Fishburne. They hired him to voice Galactus, but then oh. they kind of changed the whole focus and they decided to make it more about the Silver Surfer and he originally was not going to speak and then they just switched it over and said, hey, Lawrence, you want to voice the Silver Surfer instead? He's like, all right. <laughs> I'm getting a paycheck either way, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> 
so yeah, the, the movie itself altogether is not great, but the Silver Surfer elements are very cool. And Doug Jones in the costume, just the, the practical costume. When are we ever going to see something like that again? Never. Unless you get like somehow Guillermo del Toro yeah. to do a Silver <laughs> Surfer film. I don't think we're going to have practical effects. But this is the thing about Silver Surfer, ultimately... He was a character that Stan Lee has said was absolutely his favorite ever. And, you know, that was because he got to do his philosophical monologues about the strife on Earth and lacking the standard superhero battles. It didn't sell well, but it was an artistic achievement as far as Stan was concerned, because <laughs> it was literally him speaking. But here is actually what Stan said, ultimately talking about the year 1969 in comics. For the first time in years, Marvel was dropping titles instead of adding them. Not Brand Eck and Doctor Strange were among the first cancellations. Perhaps the biggest disappointment for stan lee was having to drop the silver surfer the philosophical superhero quote the publisher said if we gave him more action and treated him more like a normal superhero the sales would pick up says lee i didn't want to change him so i said let's just drop the book <laughs> so that's how committed he was he's like it that is who the silver surfer is and we're just gonna leave him if i'm not writing him and if i don't do it the way i want to do it then he's just gonna go away <laughs> and I always found more interesting than the Silver Surfer himself. It always amused me, like, the B-teamers who became Heralds of Galactus in his wake. You know, can you guys <laughs> name any future Heralds of Galactus? I don't uh, think so. I mean, there was Fire Lord. Okay. Yeah, he just had a big staff that had fire on each end, and he had a flaming hair, and he was orange and yellow. There was Terax who had a big axe and kind of looked like Darkseid. <laughs> and there was Frankie Ray, who was known as Nova when the Nova name was not being used at the time. And so she actually dated Johnny Storm at one point and then became a Herald of Galactus. And one of my personal favorites, and I don't know if you've ever read this issue, Michael, I know you love your What If stories, but I have a comic that's What If Dazzler became the Herald of Galactus? I've never read this. Random. I, I do know of this story. I've heard of this story. <laughs> so I have a, a very interesting thing now, because we've talked about this a few times in this, this conversation, about how artists have recreated the same character, more or less, in another company or whatever. Now, I truly think that Jack Kirby, once he left Marvel and went to DC, made Orion of the New Gods as his other version of Silver Surfer. They're so similar in their backgrounds, and they're they're both flying on some sort of jet ski type of a device or a surfboard. I feel like they're the same character, just in a different universe. Michael, you say that, but there's actually another character who I believe is actually directly the Silver Surfer, and instead of being the Silver Surfer, he's kind of like the polar opposite. I'm actually flipping through my DC Cosmic cards right now, because I remember seeing this card growing up and i was like oh no tell me this character does not exist uh but it, it is a jack kirby creation to my understanding and his name is black racer <laughs> black racer he's on skis and he has ski poles and he looks like the black panther mixed with the black knight from the avengers on skis 
I don't know what to say. He's part of the new gods, and it just says, Speeding through the spaceways to deliver his fatal touch, the Angel of Death, known as the Black Racer, serves the Source, that omnipresent, omnipotent force that commands the lives of the new gods. No one can outrace the ski-shod harbinger of doom. No barrier can block his inevitable presence. But when his work is done, he is transformed once more into his earthly identity of paralyzed veteran Sergeant Willie Walker. And it wow. shows his weapons, the Black Racer's skis of death. <laughs> I, I guess I guess snowboarding hadn't been invented yet. That's that, right. That maybe would have been a little cooler. <laughs> so funny enough, in 2014, 2015, at the tail end of the New 52, Jeff Johns brings back the Black Racer. And basically what happens is it infects, like this, the, whatever the being is of the Black Racer, infects the Flash. Oh, and the Flash becomes the Black Racer for a little while, which was interesting. But that I didn't know great. that. I didn't know how far back that went. I didn't realize that. But yeah, yeah, nineteen seventy-one. He was there with New Gods number three. Was his first appearance. It says. But here's the thing. Now we've talked about not reading Silver Surfer. I don't know how many people did, but you cannot discount just how popular he is in pop culture. Like you said, Garen, you had a friend who was wearing a shirt. Mm-hmm. But he would pop up in all sorts of things, like Joe Satriani, guitar player. He released a full album of instrumental music called Surfing with the Alien, and he had <laughs> no intention of connecting it to the Silver Surfer, but his producer was a huge comics fan, and he got the right Smith Silver Surfer on the cover, and then Galactus's hand as part of the interior art. Everybody's like, oh, this is the soundtrack to Silver Surfer comic books. <laughs> but speaking of Rocket, there was also a failed attempt to make a Silver Surfer rock opera a movie in the late 70s for the producer of Xanadu that was going to have music by Paul McCartney and Olivia Newton-John starring a bodybuilder, Frank Zane, who's going to play Norrin Rad. I was just waiting for Adam to work in a Xanadu reference. I mean, like, I know you guys do this, like, episode thing where you count the number of times that you talk about Bob <laughs> and Rob. I was thinking maybe, like, a Xanadu. Every time Adam talks about Xanadu, you get, like, a little tick mark. Well, a little ticker, yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> it's going up. It's going up. I talked about it in episode three. We talked about the Xanadu comic, so yes. But yeah, but the cool thing about that, there was only one production still. You know, ultimately they couldn't get the funding. It didn't come together, but it looks really cool for the time. It's like this guy, he's painted all silver. He's on a reflective surfboard. He can see himself in it. And uh, they actually had uh, Stan Lee write a comic that was going to be the basis for it that does exist. And then, Michael, why don't you talk a little bit about basically the first live action silver surfer on film? All right. So. Uh, believe it or not, in, uh, in 1991, around this time, there was a short film created by a USC student that almost led to a live-action Silver Surfer movie. Michael, you went to film school. If you could have done a Silver Surfer short film for one of your projects... Let me tell you this, right? So... When I went to film school, which was in the early 2000s, if I had the ability to do the CGI, we did one thing for my thesis film, which was like a five-minute opening in 3D Studio Max, and it took six days to render out on two computers. I can't imagine what an entire film with a CGI character would take back then. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's wild, because these guys, like, they were just fans, they wanted to do it, they put it together, and what happened was, it was basically, they had, like, a very short bit of test footage, they started showing it around, people got interested, so they started getting all these 
use grants because they were students to fund it to get it produced and as it was getting produced all of a sudden they're getting meetings with marvel with stan lee then it's getting passed on to james cameron oliver stone wanted to do it quentin tarantino had come just prior to this and wanted to do it and the rights holders said no we're not interested because he had only done reservoir dogs at this point he hadn't done pulp fiction so he did just like nowadays he's getting to do a star trek film or whatever you know it's like he didn't have the clout to do his dream project but what's interesting is that these guys they did this five minute film that actually looks great it was before terminator 2 but by the time they released it terminator 2 had come out so they actually have a t-800 arnold action figure in the film that the silver surfer turns into a silver surfer doll instead but yeah it doesn't look that much better than what they did in rise of the silver surfer i mean to be that much earlier like a decade earlier more than a decade yeah this little short film like you said it's actually pretty impressive when the kid's taking off his sunglasses you can see the reflection of this little yeah. surfer in his sunglasses and then when they show the surfer they've worked in all of the reflection of the surroundings in and what year did you say this was made 91 like i don't 91. think they finished it till like 93 but it was like they were working on it up until that right. point so yeah. like same time as t2 but these were a bunch of kids just in college it's uh, it's pretty cool Listen, from from somebody that does editing on a daily basis, this would be hard to do today in, in <laughs> programs like After Effects and Nuke. It's like a really complicated thing to do. It's it's even just the reflection parts and the shading and all that stuff is really way ahead of its time. I'm sure these guys got real big jobs after they had this movie out there for a little while so ultimately it just came down to the legal rights issues associated with the unreleased roger corbin fantastic film kind of like that same thing but what did happen was this animated series on fox in 1998 which is on disney plus if you guys want to watch the silver surfer cartoon i think that was just past the time when everybody was super into x-men and spider-man by 98 it wasn't as big a deal i think people had kind of hit overload but did you ever see this garrett did you ever hear about the silver surfer animated series i saw it on disney plus when i was flipping through the other day and i i thought what is that but no not not at the time yeah i mean it, it's really beautiful to look at it's really well crafted and they use a lot of computer animation to fill in certain things but not in an intrusive way it really looks like jack kirby art and it, just closing out here speaking of animation michael do you remember doug on nickelodeon the... do i remember doug of course i remember doug <laughs> absolutely please doug funny was my boy quail man baby quail man quail man and later on it, he had this whole group of superheroes that he would pal around with in his imaginary tales and one of them was the silver skeeter because <laughs> skeeter was his best friend so now skeeter you know put on a helmet and he was all silver and he had a skateboard and he was the silver skeeter so i just find it hilarious even on the tick animated series there was an homage to galactus which i thought was pretty funny where the tick becomes the herald of this galactus type being and he has to like massage his toes <laughs> it's gross and hilarious but yeah so the reach of galactus and the silver surfer been very large and in fact like garen alluded to we may see galactus soon the silver surfer at least is rumored now to finally be in production to get his own standalone film. It didn't happen because Rise of the Silver Surfer was not a huge hit. As they were planning it. That was the next thing, but it just didn't come together. So, Silver Surfer, watch the skies. So, do we want to jump into Punisher's Price Guide? 
So this month in Punisher's Price Guide, we have Silver Surfer number 50, the embossed silver cover, which at that time was $8.50 in 1991. Now today, that book is worth $5. You can actually buy a lot of five copies together for a whopping 25 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> And that makes this issue, sadly, a burnout. Wah, wah. <laughs> it's rough. We will discuss Silver Surfer number 50 as it pertains to winning an autographed copy of that book later on. But now it's time to visit Robin Todd's Hype Machine. Actually, the front of this magazine, there's a from the publisher letter from Garib Seamus, the editor-in-chief here, and he mentions, hey, what's up? I just got back from sunny Seattle, Washington. I'll tell you, it's a nice change of pace from New York. I went to go visit Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld. As you can see, I think they really like me. And there's a picture of him with Rob and Todd up at the top of a thought balloon, them saying, what a geek. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I saw that page, I was like, oh boy, this thing's going to be littered with it. Like, Here we go. Buckle up. This is the interesting thing, right? Because uh, they have a market watch feature in Wizard where they kind of talk about things you should keep an eye on, be aware of for the value of your comics. And one of the things it mentions is McFarland's departure from comics has led his books to decreasing in value. They actually have a, a quote. Come on, Todd, we miss you. When are you coming back? <laughs> and there's a, in the letters section at the very end, and there's a question from one of the readers he says now that mcfarlane has left spider-man does that mean his amazing spider-man batman and other comics he did will increase in value and according to wizard unfortunately for todd mcfarlane buffs the old amazing spider-mans done by mcfarlane have for a long time been stagnant in price and as this month's price guide shows have slightly decreased in value due to lack of interest <laughs> wow he's been gone for like a month or two and it's like ah mcfarlane's out of here because that was it right it was like everybody wanted the new hot guy and when you leave it's like fine we don't need you <laughs> but for this section we actually have a little fun bit here because garen we both used to and you still do live near mcfarland's retail store that right. is located at the sports complex where the arizona cardinals football team plays and the coyotes hockey team play yeah. is that store still there next to the movie theater it's been a couple of years since i've gone down to that theater and it was there at that point but uh yeah i don't know i have to check yeah so have you gone in that store before i have yeah and it's pretty cool and i have fond memories of when he started doing the spawn toys and they always came with a little comic book too and i still have some of the comics i remember trading in the toys eventually but i mean he was one of the first ones to really make action figures that i mean look super awesome absolutely yeah he was amazing in that way and they, and they have obviously a lot of mcfarland toys at this store they have comics they have sports memorabilia and stuff too because i mean it's it's todd mcfarland he had that the infamous ball was it mark mcguire's or was it sammy sosa's it was mcguire's i think what is like three million or five million or something and then he toured it around north america people wanted to see this ball and then it was like oh steroids never yeah, mind exactly <laughs> sorry todd <laughs> well listen i i've seen mark mcguire play at, at shea stadium one time and the man hit like four home runs and they had to be 700 feet each 
And I said to myself, let them all do steroids. This is super exciting. Who cares? <laughs> no, one, no one likes a pitching duel anyway. <laughs> now, I actually had a run-in with McFarlane at a movie theater. It was at an AMC theater screening of the Clone Wars animated series, which I'm sure you remember very well, Garrett. Yes. They were doing this one-night-only show for the return of Darth Maul, which is not what it was at all. It was like two or three episodes put together, and it was about a new member of Darth Maul's race, who I believe was yellow, not red. Mm-hmm. So he was a character they were introducing, and then there was this like brief mention of Darth Maul like in a flashback, is what I recall of, of that particular episode, but they gave you a poster, and it was like a big deal to go in. But while I'm sitting in the theater, I see Todd McFarlane walk in with his kids, and I was just like, what? I don't believe it! <laughs> Because <laughs> for those who don't know, Todd McFarland lives in Arizona. He's yeah, been Arizona. an Arizona resident for a long time. I saw him there and I was like, oh, I should have like waited in the men's room. I don't know, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it just said, hi, Todd. I'm a big fan. Not really, but I know who you are. Right, exactly. <laughs> he is talented and I love his business sense. So I feel like at the, the time, the art was super exciting and you were programmed to like, this art is awesome. But when you go back and look at it, especially when he draws the characters as humans and not superheroes they're still cartoony yeah so i would have said at the time i was a huge fan if i look back at it i like the way he draws spider-man but everything else is i I don't really love in his defense because i'm sure he heard this criticism a lot i actually have a video that i picked up recently at a thrift store which is called todd mcfarland's comic book facts and illusions released by starber home video it's this 45 minute video he did at a you know some comic-con And he's explaining all these things. But one of the things he basically says is, look, these things are imaginary. You can draw them however you want. It's not supposed to be accurate. You know, and he's making this big (laughs) defense about like, parents are scared. They say my comics are too violent. And he has this like nine-year-old kid come up and he's like, do you think this is violent? He's like, yes. Are you scared of it? Not really. Do you think that a killer clown is going to come after you or this big demon with sharp razor fang teeth is going to destroy you? No. There you go, mom and dad. This kid knows what's real and what isn't. Case closed. Yeah. (laughs) Todd has spoken. Todd has spoken. He can do whatever he wants in comics because it will not influence anybody for the worse. He paid a three million, by the way, three million for Mark McGuire's ball. Seven hundred million. Seventy seventieth home run. Yeah, three million. Oh, my goodness. Like I said, he was smart, though. He got his money back. It was literally on tour. You had to pay to see the ball. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he had it graded. It's all encased in plastic. But that brings us, this is actually the longest Ramatons hype machine we've had. There's so much to talk about at this point. And yet, in this issue, surprisingly, so Rob gets five mentions, Todd gets four. So that brings our running total. Rob Liefeld currently 17, Todd 18. And it's been this way for multiple issues. Rob is not quite there. He's always one below. <laughs> It's pretty, it's weird. There's probably some sort of algorithm application we could find. They'll just run it through all. We can find out the grand total. But it's kind of exciting to watch the build up as it goes. Like, where, right. When is it going to die off, too? That's what I want to know. Like, when are they going to stop talking? Probably, I'd like, say, around 95, they probably stop talking about them, I feel like. Well, but then they come back with Heroes Reborn. Oh, yeah, that's right. Like, so they go back to Marvel. Like, not Todd, but, you know, Liefeld goes back to Marvel. And, yeah. Well, I know I said we weren't going to do it, but I do have a brief 
brief mention for Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go-Go. How bizarre. Walt Simonson's commentary on gimmick covers and polybagged comics for dealers stuck with 20 billion copies. And what it says here is, uh, Wizard asks him a question. Every time I hear somebody say they're buying 50 copies of whatever the latest hot product is and how they're planning to make a mint on it, I think, but there are umpity um, umpty ump <laughs> umpty ump million copies in circulation so ridiculous umpity ump million <laughs> wow so then Walt and Louise chime in on this and Walt says everyone who wants one will have 50 copies himself and then Louise says and that I think is where it's all going to fall apart the minute somebody tries to sell Spider-Man number one and can't get what they think it's worth whatever that might be then it will begin falling apart we'll see this vast unloading like a run on the banks with everybody trying to unload their copies of Spider-Man number one and then <laughs> woe is us the whole industry will fall apart wow so the question that I had for you guys on this because you know we talk a lot about gimmick covers that is what is lamented that is what is poked fun at when you look at 90s comics but did it really kill the industry or did it just chase out all the people that were trying to cash in on it the people who were in it for the hype whether it was reading for the hype buying for the hype publishing comics for the hype yeah i don't think that it got rid of the core comic book readers that were always going to be there i look at it like this you know it probably chased away some of the resellers it's just like you know funko pops or the you know that's going to die off soon i'll never forget i was like there was qui-gon Jin one year in your comic con somebody bought for 15 dollars turned around to me and said hey i'll sell it to you for 300 i was like what yeah, <laughs> but like for you garrett for example when you were reading the comics buying the comics how long was that period and when did you kind of fade out from it or did you continue reading it's interesting because I think I'm I'm one of those that started to push away as I w- look through my collection today. I don't have a lot of the gimmicky covers because they were just so darn expensive. So to me, it wasn't worth reading the story and seeing your favorite character if you had to pay an extra two bucks just because the, the cover was some gimmick. And I remember one of the things that drove me away from comics, too, was... They would do these crossovers that there were so many books to keep up with. Oh, X-Men yeah. did one. Ghost Rider did one. There was like 20 books that you had to follow. And and I think Ghost Rider ends up dying at the end in somebody else's book, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but I remember it's like within a two-month period, I, I can't keep up with this many comics because I just don't have the money for it. And I also feel like having collected sports cards, I was pretty wise to like like what happens when you're you're prospecting. So you have to do comics because you like the characters and the story, not because you think it's going to be worth a, a bunch of money someday. Yeah, and by the way, I have to mention to you, when I worked in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh-huh. and this guy came up to me when he found out that I like comics, one of my coworkers, and he's this guy who was, he was a salesman, but he was always like had a scheme. He always had something <laughs> going on on the side. And he came to me, he's like, hey, you're know, I, uh, I got some pretty valuable comics I bought back in the 90s. You might want to take a look at them. <laughs> and he showed them to me, and I'm just like, these are nothing. They're just random issues of comics. They're worth zero. He's like, I paid like 25 bucks for this when it came out. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> it wasn't worth 25 bucks back then, yeah. so I don't know who ripped you off. But... <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. There were everybody was trying to get in on it, and it did not pay off for very many. Unless, like that guy did to Michael, you turned around literally right after you bought it and tried to sell it. That's when you were going to get the money, not twenty, thirty years down the line. We're all parents, and you know we all have kids of various ages. I look at it for me, like my comics. I have no interest in selling them because I hope that someday, if my kids are interested, they're going to be like, "Hey, you've got twenty five white boxes in the basement. What are those? Oh, those are my." <laughs> comics let's sit down and read some and that's kind of what i hope that for me has more value than trying to sell off my death of superman book at some point which is probably worth less than i paid for it based on the condition that's in at this point so yeah i totally agree i mean i have a pretty cool star wars collection and they always ask me you know are you going to sell this for a lot of money someday and i didn't collect it because i wanted to sell it someday i collect it because i think it's awesome right exactly speaking of that we are going to now move into robin's reading rainbow Okay, so this is great. We are excited to have Garrett on here because this month being released was a book called Star Wars Dark Empire by Dark Horse Comics. And this, if I'm not incorrect, Garrett, is the first Star Wars comic book of that 90s modern era in a time when Star Wars comics had gone away. Like, they just hadn't existed for quite a while. Is that correct? There, there was no new Star Wars content. I mean, there hadn't been since Return of the Jedi, and it, it sort of fizzled out around 1985. And so there was this big Star Wars drought. So when the novel came out by Timothy Zahn, Heir to the Empire, um, if you've heard of Heir to the Empire, which to us was it was the new – it was the sequel trilogy. I mean, we hadn't seen anything. And then um, Dark Horse came out with Dark Empire uh, comics. So it was it was to us, you know, the canon sequels. Yeah, because I remember like being in comic shops and the only Star Wars stuff that I saw prior to this launching was like the Star Wars Bendems. Mm-hmm. The only merchandise that seemed to be released at that time. Yep, that's right. I mean, for so long there was just nothing. So when there was new stories, it was super exciting. What they mention here in Wizard in the Comics Watch section is that the hot artist now on Uncanny X-Men was Wills Portacio, and what they say is just what he thought you had found all the hot X-Men artists Will Sportacio's work along comes an obscure issue from five years ago that's right the first known work Portacio had done for Marvel is Star Wars number 107 the last issue of the series with sales on Portacio's Uncanny X-Men at an all-time high and back issue sales on X-Factor continually on the rise this book may surprise a lot of people also expect interest on Star Wars to be high with the release of Star Wars Dark Empire on sale this month from Dark Horse so we are actually we're going to do a review of both these issues just to kind of give a perspective on how much Star Wars comics changed because Garrett I'm sure you can provide some insight on this but when Star Wars came out Marvel got the license to produce Star Wars comics like first an adaptation of the original film but then they kept going I mean they just kept going and 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 I mean, some of it felt so foreign to Star Wars. Some of it was really cool. But then, you know, introduction of 
of space rabbits and all kinds of <laughs> odd creatures. It just became goofy. Yeah, and by the time they get to this issue 107, which they say was five years ago, so I guess we're talking about 1986 is about when that wrapped up, it opens with a shot of Luke Skywalker looking like he's never looked before. <laughs> It looks like Rambo is what he looks like. He does. He looks like he's auditioning for a role of the next Contra video game. Totally. <laughs> what is going on with this outfit? When you really look at him, I say to myself, I believe he was the inspiration for the new adventures of He-Man, the relaunch <laughs> of the cartoon and the action figures in 1989. If anybody remembers this. I had the action figure. I remember it very much. So, but I yeah. mean, like literally he's just, he's got pants and boots and he's got no shirt on, but he's got a, like a bandolier from his gun on his long flowing blonde hair now. And it is a sight. This, this issue was so bad. Yeah. So and, bad. and it's not Portacio's art, by the way. He just inked it. That's all yeah. That's all he did of this. And the cast of characters at this point in this book is gigantic. Like, they're this, you know, rogue group of rebels, but they're like all these aliens in the mix. There's a, a Mandalorian in the mix, but it's not yeah. Boba Fett. And you're just like, I don't know who all these characters are. And they're just bickering and arguing. They're like in this foxhole. They're trying to plan to break into some type of fortress for this group that has taken people hostage. I don't... Could you follow any of it? Was it any canon you understood, Garen? Oh, no. I mean, it, none of this makes sense. They all end up putting on dresses and, like, storming this <laughs> castle of a bunch of French aristocrats or something. I mean, it's yeah, so they, bizarre. They, they look like Boz Nass, but he's starring in a production of Amadeus. Totally. Yes, perfect. It is confusing. And the interesting thing I found, though, is like, you know, the only people that look like they come from Star Wars, you got Chewbacca, you got Han, you got Leia, and they've stayed pretty true. Uh, like I said, Luke's gone a little bit crazy. And then they have introduced the one thing I thought was cool were weapons droids. Like, they look way better than the prequel droids that were walking along and Roger, Roger, you know, like right, those goofballs. Yeah. Like, these guys at least look sort of like Terminators and they could blast <laughs> right. you. And they're yeah. kind of cool looking. But also, there is a female Darth Vader. Like, I don't... Have you ever heard of this character? Like, her name is, like, Lady Lumira? I... I no, never. I mean, obviously... No, no expanded universe stuff? This, nothing? Of this run, but... <laughs> yeah, this is, nobody's talking about this. It, it didn't go out with a bang. We'll say that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's really rough. And it just the, the worst part of it to me, if I was going to point to anything, is that Luke's lightsaber looks like a Nerf fencing sword. It's, it's solid. It, it, exactly it looks like he's one of these whacking people. With, it's, it's unfortunate is really what it is. Uh, we'll we'll so post some odd. pictures on social media so you guys can see this. And if you it's dare so to buy odd. it on Comixology or the Marvel app like we did. <laughs> did. Did you read the last line of the entire series? Read it for us here. Luke's standing here with the group and he says, Sure, for the first time in a long time, all of us as races and as individuals have a fair chance at making peace. And I hope, no, I know, we can do it. <laughs> wow. Captain Planet. Yeah. I mean, oh, That's my God. campy 80s stuff right there. So Whew. bad. Yeah, freeze frame. Now, on the flip side, 
We have Star Wars Dark Empire number one. Now, if the cover of this thing doesn't sell you, just the painted artwork to bring you back to the glory of Star Wars, I don't know what will. I'm curious for you, Garrett, how did you find out about Star Wars Dark Empire? Um, I, I saw it in one of the ads in, in one of the Marvel books. Oh. You know, they have the, you know, here's the comics that are coming out, and you can order it from those little stores. So I ordered those issues from one of those, I want to say online, but of course it wasn't online today. Um, I, I called it in, gave my credit card, and they shipped it over to the house. Okay, so wow, it's direct to your door. Right. Did you buy the whole series, or how did it I go? Did, yeah, I have all, I have all six. Yeah. Wow. wow. All right. That's cool. But this is not based on the Heir to the Empire novels. This is a new continuing story in that universe? Correct. It is. So sort of the rundown. The Empire is sort of fizzled out. Um, the Alliance has tried to form a republic. Han and Leia are married. And I think so. They did a Dark Empire, too. And I honestly can't remember if she's pregnant in this one or the next one. But she's pregnant with twins. Of course, twins, right? <laughs> and uh, and then the Empire is having a civil war, and they go into this planet. And did you read this issue, Adam? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so then, then Luke ends up getting taken by this basically this planet vacuum. It's, it's going through and just sucking up all of the life on all of these planets, and he gets taken. And, you know, spoiler alert, throughout the series you find out that the Emperor Palpatine has returned. And, you know, I think there's some missed opportunities to draw from this material for Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and the thing I'll just say about this, just the art is really fantastic. I mean, the, the interior art is not painted, but it is very cinematic in its style. And like literally like every other page is a huge battle scene. So good. Right. You've got these. So you've got every cover by Dave Dorman that are, all look like movie posters. And then you've got this Cam Kennedy art inside. And he does this cool like ink and uh, it's got to be watercolor. Yeah, um, that's what it looks like. Yeah, and, and it's really cool. And I always, when I when I look at it, I always think that the characters don't really look like themselves. I mean, like the Han doesn't look like Harrison Ford or the Luke. But when you look at the ships and the technology, it's super cool. Yeah, and I, I did read ahead a little bit, and it, it does keep getting better. Like, I think this is what everybody imagined. They were mm -hmm. hoping that something like the prequels would be, or this new series. Like, why don't you just adapt these stories? But they just did not go that direction but obviously it kicked off a huge glut of star wars comics after this i mean dark horse coasted for quite a long time on star wars and aliens and everything else in issue six palpatine clones himself to a young version of himself like a buff before episode one and what we looked what he looked like in episode one. I mean, so he clones himself as like a 25 year old that's all buff and busts out a lightsaber and, and Luke duels with him lightsabers. And I always thought that was so cool. Like if he's going to clone himself, why doesn't he clone himself as this young Sith Lord instead of uh, what we ended up with is sort of the decrepit plugged in emperor that couldn't do anything so there was no lightsaber battle too bad missed opportunity the last thing i'll just mention here garrett i know you got a pretty awesome piece of comic book art for christmas what can you tell us about this present yeah so if you've seen star wars episode seven you notice that c-3po has a red arm 
and they never explained why and they decided they were going to do an issue of the comic books a c-3po number one and they were going to use the comic books to explain how he ended up with that red arm and so my cousin knowing that i love star wars and her husband actually does some comic writing found this original piece of artwork from that comic book and so the name of the comic book is phantom limb and i have the original marvel page and it's signed by the artist tony harris and then also the other signature is Anthony Daniels C3PO. It is amazing. That's pretty cool. Wow, that's awesome. I immediately ordered the uh, original book. I didn't have that one yet, and so I'm trying to figure out a way to display it so I can have the you know the printed page next to the original art in the comic book and, and that'll some be kind so of cool, cool. Display. well and speaking of displays we could just segue into Azrael's action figure fury. So, Garen, you have an absolutely stunning collection in your Fortress of Solitude in your house (laughs) related to Star Wars as well. What can you tell us about that? Let's see. I've got a complete set of vintage Star Wars action figures. So a bunch of those I had from when I was a kid, and I just was that guy who pack rat everything, just kept everything. And so then I decided, oh, maybe 15 years ago that I was going to finish the set, and so... I've been eBaying and yard selling and offer up and every other app you could think of where you find these things and was finally able to put together a complete set of all the figures released from 1977 through the last 17 figures they released in 1985 and all of their original weapons, which is really the most, most difficult thing to do. Some of those little tiny pieces of plastic, those original weapons, if you go on eBay and try to buy them separately, can be... 70 to a hundred dollars just for that little tiny piece because of course that's as kids what we all lost you lose those instantly yeah right, for sure yeah. <laughs> you can find the figure but but man those little pieces and then there's a couple of variant figures that i got too there's a figure that was only released in canada and in britain that i have so uh yeah maybe about a year ago i finally completed it with all of the original weapons so that's pretty exciting yeah the best part is he has a full display case that has the star wars logo on it and everything so the the full shelves of all the characters on display mounted to the wall i mean it's a sight to behold it's very cool maybe you can send us a picture garrett i hope you have them under your homeowner's insurance (laughs) (laughs) it's time to take a break and tell you once again that this week wizards the podcast guide to comics is sponsored by minifiguresmarket.com your source for custom painted lego minifigures and we're talking star wars this episode you better believe they got a full selection luke skywalker princess leia a tuscan raider a six-piece droid set how about the little guys like yoda and wicked the ewok they're all there so head on over to minifiguresmarket.com it's the perfect gift idea for the geek in your life or your own personal collection and now back to the show but yeah so that's very cool it's speaking of foreign releases in the toying around section they actually highlight some of the you know major toy lines like secret wars and superpowers but they mention the foreign releases so for example they have brazilian releases of the secret wars figures that they said that the there were only six known to exist the card backings are larger with better artwork 
Well, I was like, really? Okay, so we have to seek those out. But the same with the superpowers figures that were called the Super Amigos. <laughs> and they were released in 1989, 1990. And it says they lack the quality of the Kenners. The Riddler is the only figure that doesn't appear in the U.S. editions. Surprisingly, the Riddler is a repainted Green Lantern figure. Look at the <laughs> ring finger. And the last thing that I found really interesting about this is they mentioned the Toy Biz DC figures for back in the day. So there was the Batman movie figures that Toy Biz did, but then they started producing these DC Comics superheroes. And they say here that the second series was birthed due to the immense popularity of the Flash television show in 1990. And I was like, I had no idea that that was the impetus for it, that that's why they decided to try that. I personally love the Flash TV show from the 90s, so I'm all for anything that came out of that show. So, folks, welcome to our favorite segment, Riddle Me This. This week's quiz, I'm going to be quizzing Garen. Now, there are a couple different questions, and the way this works is you have to figure out, based on the amount of letters and the spaces, what the quiz would be. So the first one is really, really easy. Who is the world's greatest detective? I'm going to go with Batman. All right. I hope so. Yes, it looks like that would be the right answer. <laughs> yes. The next one is another pretty easy one. I'll be back. I'll be back. Definitely Terminator. It looks like Terminator would fit in that space, so I will say that is correct. The next one is, who is the X-Men's greatest foe? All right. I'm going to go with Magneto. Does that fit in the spaces? Magneto fits in the space, yeah. I would have there also said I would have also said humanity, but X but Magneto fits. <laughs> Prejudice. Yeah. yeah, right. The next one is Jay Garrick. I've got nothing. I, who is that? He is the Flash from the Justice Society of America, or also the Earth Two Flash. A lot of times, so the God, answer okay. would be Flash. But yeah, Fly, okay. Like I, like I said before, I'm I'm not really a DC guy, so you get into those DC things, I'll never get it. <laughs> the next one, Sean Cassidy. I've I've got nothing. Sean Cassidy. Huh. Not the brother of David Cassidy from the Partridge Family, who was right. a '70s pop star. <laughs> and and. and Honestly, that would have been my guess, the Partridge family. Right. <laughs> you guys, it's Banshee. It's Banshee. Oh, yeah, I would have okay. gotten that one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. You got to know your X-Men, guys. Come on. I have the Banshee action figure still in the package. He had a whistle on his back, and that's what his action feature was. So. Oh, nice. Okay, the next one is Fatal to Superman. All right, th this one I think I can... Kryptonite, final answer. I would go with Kryptonite. I think that would fit. Yeah, based on the letters, I would say yes. I'll give you that. And yes. now the last one, I think we mentioned earlier, but it's been two hours at this point. We might have forgotten it. <laughs> I gave you a clue. <laughs> you Were you paying attention? You did give a clue. Frankie Ray is the Frankie hint. Ray. Uh, I don't know. Uh, does it have anything to do with Xanadu? I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I wish it did. It's it's four letters, and I forgot what the answer was. But Adam, what's the answer? The answer is Nova. Uh, She's Nova. Johnny oh, Storm's yeah. girlfriend who became the Herald of Galactus. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, guys, this was a super fun episode. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us and yeah, being here. Pleasure. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Yeah, and everybody listening at home, we look forward to having you back for episode six. We invite you to keep an eye on the Retro Network podcast feed. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. Bye, everybody. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.